I'm weird. I'm a weirdo. I don't fit in, and I don't want to fit in. Jughead Jones is an important writer, and he wants you to know it. Where the Jughead of Archie Comics is a happy-go-lucky, food-motivated sidekick to his friend Archie, Riverdale's version of the character is a brooding, pretentious writer who serves as the series narrator. Our story is about a town, a small town. As a less-than-macho intellectual, Jughead can be incredibly annoying. I'm the damaged loner outsider from the wrong side of the tracks. But that's what we like about him. Why? Jughead is part of a longer tradition of obnoxious indie guys in movies and TV who serve to make the rest of the cast look good by comparison and give us someone we love to hate. But in Riverdale's case, Jughead's artistic pursuits also ground some of the bigger flights of fancy on the show, ranging from the many literary and cinematic serial killers dogging Riverdale to the structure of the universe itself. Here's our take on why we love Jughead Jones, precisely because he's so obnoxious. I have a hard Holden Caulfield stance on funny small talk, thanks. Do you often use fictional references to make sense of your situation? If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and click the bell to get notified about all our new videos. I'm gonna sit alone, just gonna finish my book and brood. From the beginning of the series on, Jughead is a writer with a capital W. He frequently tosses off references to writers he likes, including H.P. Lovecraft, Philip K. Dick, or Stephen King. <sighs> Screw you, Stephen King. During his senior year of high school, Jughead transfers to elite prep school Stonewall Prep, which takes special pride in its history of producing successful writers. At Stonewall, Jughead meets characters like Brett Weston Wallace, named for author Brett Easton Ellis, and Donna Sweet, named for the Goldfinch writer Donna Tart. After he transfers back and graduates from Riverdale High, Jughead moves to New York, becomes a successful writer with a novel that thinly disguises his experiences in high school, then becomes a sleazy, self-mythologizing drunk suffering from writer's block, running away from debt collectors. It's perhaps the most hateable he's ever been, especially when he compares himself to canonical writers who were also miserable people in order to justify his alcoholism. And you drink too much. So did Kerouac and Hemingway and Fitzgerald. It's not just that Jughead puts his artistic interests over his personal ones, he wants to be disliked and alone, to the point where he hates his own birthday. There's one thing that Jughead likes less than surprises, and that's his birthday. His kids never even had a party, never wanted one. In making himself so unlikable, Jughead joins a long line of self-serious guys on TV and in movies who grate on us with their sense of superiority and cultural obsessions. Dan on Gossip Girl was pretentious to a fault, focused intently on the idea that he was some great unsung genius, even though it turns out he spends most of his time producing a vicious gossip blog. Dan, I cannot believe you were the one responsible for all of this poison. In some respects, Gossip Girl agreed with Dan. The stories he did write somehow got him published in The New Yorker while in high school. There are even jokes about this on the new HBO Max reboot of Gossip Girl. Uh, did you get to the part where she was Princess of Monaco for six months? Or when a high school senior got a story published in The New Yorker? As a writer, I'm a little jealous. Writer Jack Berger on Sex and the City is perhaps the most notorious of Carrie's exes, with the popular Every Outfit on Sex and the City Instagram calling him the worst man that Carrie dates, hands down. Berger's fragile masculinity and low self-esteem lead him to angrily shut down when Carrie makes one light-hearted critique of his book. You can't just shut down like this. If, if you thought that I had made some kind of mistake, I would want you to tell me. Nice hat. And when Carrie gets a big advance for her book, his resentment at having just been dropped by his publisher leads him to take it out on Carrie. But I am not sorry I made that money. I worked really hard for it. 
And I never thought that you would be the type of guy that would have a problem with that. Well, neither did I, but I guess I do, don't I? Before he breaks up with her in the most cowardly, affected way possible. I'm sorry I can't, don't hate me. The motherfucker's concise. Kyle in Ladybird, almost a parody of the too cool faux deep hipster boy. I, I like your band. Uh, with Jonah Ruiz, L'Enfance New. L'Enfance New. Catches the protagonist's eye in part because he seems to not care about anything, smokes, and reads Howard's in. But in the end, he exists to clarify that Ladybird's real important relationships are with people who do care. When she gets understandably upset with him, he deflects by absurdly claiming her pain isn't as important as major world events. You mean like awareness of how many civilians we've killed since the invasion in Iraq started? Shut up! Different things can be sad, it's not all war. It's not just that these guys all happen to be both pretentious and coincidentally rude to the people around them, it's that they prioritize their own intellectual pursuits over everything, including just behaving semi-decently to people, and they even imply they have to act like bad people because they're so talented. For Lady Bird and Sex in the City, the point of the character is for the female protagonist to grow beyond this bad apple's failings. But for other pretentious guys, the series wants us to want to follow them, even when, maybe especially when, they're awful to people around them. So you'd rather talk to your agent than your girlfriend, that's awesome. These self-serious guys aren't just annoying. Sardonic humor is just my way of relating to the world. They frequently use their art and their supposed outsider position as an excuse to be cruel to their friends and family. But though Jughead is pretentious, he's also from by far the poorest background of the four main characters and is literally unhoused at the beginning of the series. His father, FP, is the leader of the Southside Serpents motorcycle gang, and the series gets a lot out of the contrast between FP's life and Jughead's talents and aspirations. You're the first Jones man to get into college. You're going to college. This contrast mirrors the background of Dan Humphrey, the lonely boy who doesn't belong in the glitzy world of the Upper East Side, though his family can afford a huge apartment in Brooklyn. Okay, if you ever wanted something so badly, but you just know you're not gonna get it. No, that's right, I, I forgot who I'm talking to, of course you haven't, but that, that, was, that was my whole life but manages to fight his way in through his writing as Gossip Girl. Kyle is an inverse version of this. He positions himself as uninterested in wealth and status, even though he actually possesses a lot of both. I'm trying to, as much as possible, not participate in our economy. I don't like money. Doesn't Catholic school cost money? Jughead is, in some way, the most authentic version of this trope. He doesn't necessarily want to be part of high society in the way that Dan does, but he also wants to find success through his writing and through his art. When he achieves that success, though, it merely creates additional problems for him. And though Jughead frames his writing as about the pursuit of artistic integrity, he ultimately reveals himself to be primarily interested in his own glory at the expense of his relationships with his friends and family. I don't know what you need, Jones but I'm definitely not it. Good luck with your buck. It's the only thing you care about anyway. When Jughead returns to Riverdale, years after moving to New York and publishing his book, he's shocked to learn that people are angry about his portrayal of the town. Are you guys actually upset about my novel? You made the serpents look like fools in it. This is ironic, considering he prides himself on being an outsider who can tell the truth about everyone around him, and it's pretty predictable that his subjects would be mad, but Jughead is condescending to the point of ignorance. He's genuinely surprised people were able to decipher his not particularly subtle character names. I didn't use your actual names. You think people around here couldn't figure out who... Yeah, what was that one character's name? Toothy was? Yeah, or Popeye. 
Nowhere is Jughead's exploitative tendency more apparent than in his relationship with Betty. Though in Archie comics, Jughead traditionally has little romantic interest in anyone, and in recent comics he's openly asexual. In Riverdale, he's become a surprisingly compelling romantic lead. And for years, Betty is an enormously supportive girlfriend, encouraging Jughead's dreams to the point where she tells him to transfer away from Riverdale and to Stonewall. You should go to Stonewall prep, Jug. I hate saying that, but it's the chance of a lifetime, and you should take it, okay? But after they break up, she becomes another target for his work. In the voicemail Jughead leaves for Betty on the night of his book release party, it's clear that even he doesn't believe that his book is really fiction. It's his very one-sided, callous way of processing his relationships and showing what he really thinks about all the people in his life. You're a cold, fake, duplicitous bitch. And once people read my book, everyone's gonna see that. Though Jughead later tries to apologize, his comments to Betty are part of a broader pattern. For all that he claims to want to be a loner, separate from everyone else around him. I self-identify as a loner, not a pack animal. He does want real connection, yet he keeps sabotaging himself so he can't actually have it. When people do nice things for me, I short circuit. Maybe I'm not used to it. Maybe I'm scared of getting hurt. Jughead's novel places him in spitting distance of the literary success he craves, but he finds himself back in a state of unrest, an outsider to the literary world as well. Eventually, Jughead's agent suggests more explicitly taking advantage of Riverdale's class issues and the suffering of its residents for his own material benefit. Apparently there's, there's a huge market right now for tragic Americana. Dying community, all of the miserable people who live there. You know, we'll call it elegy for a small town. What do you think? Though Jughead rejects this offer in a show of claiming to have principles. No, I don't want to write about that. He's fooling himself. This kind of exploitative writing is all he's ever done. And if his novel was any indication, it's the only type of successful writing he'll ever be able to do. This again mirrors Dan Humphrey, who spends years publicizing his friend's secrets and putting his own interests above their lives in his secret identity as Gossip Girl, which he then uses to accelerate his own career as a writer. People thought it was me, but it was actually one of my classmates. Dan Humphrey. The novelist? The Gossip Girl reboot's confirmation that Dan became a successful and famous novelist is proof that he won. Gossip Girl is ultimately the story of how Dan uses his writing talents to worm his way into the elite world of the Upper East Side, become a character in the ongoing saga of the rich and powerful, and eventually marry the ultimate it girl, Serena Vanderwoodson. If I wasn't born into this world, maybe I could write myself into it. Just as Jughead claims to not want to hurt his friends and neighbors while privately admitting that's what he's doing, Dan similarly acts concerned about Gossip Girl, but in his secret life gleefully takes the opportunity to destroy the lives of everyone he loves, including his true love, Serena, and his own sister. Breaking news. Asher Hornsby overheard bragging that little Jay swiped her V-card at his register. The damage you've done to your friends, to your family, to your own sister. So why do we continue to watch Jughead? What makes him so compelling as part of Riverdale's world? Jughead is ridiculous, over the top, and easy to mock. Look, I am by nature a conscientious objector. Much like Riverdale itself, and gives the show the opportunity to indulge many of the qualities that make it such a guilty pleasure. Thicker than blood, more precious than oil. Riverdale's big business, 
is maple syrup. The sixth season of Riverdale leans into that absurdity and clarifies why Jughead is so important. The season begins with a five-episode event titled Rivervale, which takes place in a parallel dimension, allowing the show to fully give in to its wildest Sabrina-adjacent supernatural impulses. Throughout these episodes, Jughead appears both as himself, including a plot where he sells his soul to the literal devil in order to be able to write. I'm nothing if I'm not a writer and as a Rod Serling-type narrator, framing everything on Riverdale for the audience. There's a town that exists at the borderlands, a place of nightmares and dreamscapes. After being murdered by undead Archie, this narrator version of Jughead discovers that he can keep Riverdale alive through the power of imagination. He acts as a literal engine for the story, allowing the writers to do pretty much anything they want and continue the series. Now Jughead here is going to save Riverdale by becoming a living battery, a, um, story generator. Introducing overt horror elements wasn't really that much of a stretch for Riverdale. The show thrives by balancing soapy melodrama against increasingly baroque serial killer plots. If Archie and Veronica are going through a rough patch, it needs to be paired with Betty and Jughead tracking someone like the Gargoyle King, a murderer who takes on the persona of a mythical creature and villain from the legally distinct from Dungeons and Dragons game Griffins and Gargoyles. Behold the Gargoyle King. No, but really, it was too tall to be Ethel, I think, unless she was on stilts, which is a possibility because she's not answering her phone. These plots are rarely just crime stories. They include a supernatural, metaphorical, practically spiritual component. The way that Ethel, Ben, and Dilton talk about it is like a religion. Yeah, or a cult. And every cult has its king. The lurid crime that underpins Riverdale often manifests through Jughead's writing and storytelling talents. The Gargoyle King plot forces Jughead into the role of Game Master, telling a story about the other characters. You are imprisoned in the Gargoyle King's fortress. Trapped in pens, you live in fear, never knowing when his legion of gargoyles will descend from the sky to feed. As ridiculous as something like the Gargoyle King appears to be, it also gives us something to look forward to, a structure that holds together a season of the show and adds higher stakes beyond whether Veronica will win her business duel with Hiram or whether Archie will save Riverdale by opening a boxing gym or starting a volunteer fire department. These sillier components of the series are crucial to why we enjoy the show. San Francisco had the Zodiac. New Orleans had the Axeman. Add to their ranks Riverdale's very own psychopath, the Black Hood. Jughead has also had to investigate the history of the Baxter Brothers, a riff on the Hardy Boys, as well as the work of a stalker originally named the Voyeur and then the Auteur, who makes elaborate recreations of events from the series and spies on the main characters. Though the Auteur never outright murders anyone, they're still a primary villain for much of Riverdale's fourth season, something that becomes difficult for Jughead to handle when the Auteur turns out to be his own sister, Jellybean. The series' need to have an over-the-top campy villain is literally mirrored by and embodied in Jellybean, who becomes the auteur in an effort to keep Jughead in Riverdale and maintain the status quo of the series. She wanted me to stay. The big brother she had just gotten to know was already leaving to Stonewall and then to college. She had figured the best way to keep me in town it was a mystery. On some level, Riverdale the show remains campy and enjoyable because it needs to live up to Jughead's standards. His urge to theorize about Riverdale's monsters is one of the primary engines of the series because I'm both inside and outside of the story. In the end, the universe knew I'd be the only one capable of saving. And ultimately, the operatic horror of Riverdale highlights why, in spite of ourselves, we do have affection for characters like Jughead. We're watching precisely because we like this kind of story and are interested in the people who tell them. 
it's impossible to deny that Riverdale the series is often as ridiculous as Jughead himself. They discovered that you have the MAOA and the CDH-13 genes. Also known as the serial killer genes. Beyond the serial killer drama, there's the storyline of teenage Veronica opening a non-alcoholic speakeasy, the competing motorcycle gangs, and Cheryl maintaining her brother's corpse. But we keep watching in part because this over-the-top quality is grounded in something real. Pretentious writerly guys are all over the real world, and they're a type for a reason. For all the obnoxiousness, they can often be genuinely charming. I'm not paying you to flirt. I wasn't flirting. She had been. And in embodying this archetype, Jughead is also able to marry Riverdale's many melodramatic qualities, including romance. In the same way that Carrie gets over Burger and Ladybird grows past Kyle, Jughead serves as a foil for Betty, a female character capable of one-upping him and matching his inner darkness. I'm all about the beast within. Ultimately, as much as we may claim to dislike the Jughead Jones and other indie jerk boys of the world, their behavior is so disagreeable precisely because they have a certain type of power and appeal, one that we can both fear and laugh at. I'd like to shape some impressionable young minds. This is The Take on your favorite movie shows and culture. Subscribe so you can watch all of our videos.